Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. It's Amit. Thanks for joining us for The Brunwald Chronicles as we learn about pivotal moments in the history of cardiology from Dr. Eugene Brunwald. In the last episode, we covered Chapter 1, at the right place, at the right time, and with the right people. Now, join us for Chapter 2, The Camelot Years, Myocardial Oxygen Consumption, and the Transeptal Approach. We hear about the incredible environment at the NIH during his early days, his delineation of the variables that result in myocardial oxygen demand, and the discovery of the transeptal approach, which is so key to so many of our percutaneous interventions today. Friends, as we take in this incredible series, please do remember that CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with a goal to democratize cardiovascular education. You can support the mission by subscribing to and rating the show, donating via Patreon, getting CardioNerds swag on Teespring, and sharing your love for cardiology on social media. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice, and the views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The way you speak about your time at the NIH, particularly so fondly, clearly this was a a very important and impactful time for yourself. Yes, I I think the years that I spent at the NIH got there in 55 and left in 1968. So I think that was the time that Kennedy was uh, president, of course, from uh, 60 to 63. And uh, those of us who were there, the group of uh, us who worked together in the cardiology division, consider those our Camelot years. It was like Camelot. Uh, because most everything sort of worked. Yeah, what a stimulating time. If you'll allow me, I'd like to take you back to the beginning of your time over there. When you initially arrived at the NIH, you were appointed to work in the laboratory of Dr. Stanley Sarnoff, and he posed a question for the lab. What controls myocardial oxygen consumption? You know, you talked about how you went, you know, more basic than the human being. And you also began working closely with Dr. Glenn Morrow, who at the age of 30 became the first chief of the clinic of surgery at the NIH studying valvular heart disease. So Can you tell us a little bit about your early research years at the NIH and a theme of your career, as you pointed out, has been being at the right place at the right time with the right people. And one of the moments that seemed to have been at the NIH in those early years was the creation of the transeptal approach. Would you mind sharing with us that story? So I felt coming out of the Cournon laboratory that I needed more training in basic physiology and that I would apply that ultimately clinically. I never gave up the concept of being a clinician. But it was a tremendous opportunity to work with Sarnoff, and he was new. He had come down from here, from Harvard, to the NIH. He was not drafted. It it was a tremendous opportunity for him. And there were six of us who were fellows. And he he said that, that he thought that the energy consumption of the heart had not been appropriately studied, and that this was a basic science project. And we didn't talk about patients. He was an MD, 
but had never practiced because he had come into physiological research at an early time in his career. But we didn't think about myocardial oxygen consumption being the demand and the supply demand ischemia. That was not on our minds. So we set about developing a preparation in a beating heart, in a beating dog heart, where you could separate uh, preload, afterload, myocardial contractility. And so it was the beginning of my involvement in muscle mechanics, because we also worked on isolated papillary muscles at the same time, and hemodynamics. And uh, it turned out that the product of frequency of contraction and tension development, that product was the major determinant, and that blood flow, the amount of shortening, was far less important. We all would have thought going into it that stroke work would be the dominant force, but it wasn't. And go off track for a moment, because that was when I was a fellow. I continued this work when I was chief of cardiology in my lab and working with Ross and Sonnenblick, two colleagues, we found the third important component, and that was myocardial contractility. So the velocity of contraction is just as important as the frequency of contraction and the tension development. So that's the triple whammy. And there are lots of other things that determine oxygen, like shortening and so forth, but they're minor league. So we had the three big ones. We didn't have the three big ones in two years, but I got we got the third one much later. Now, transeptal left heart catheterization. So as I mentioned, I worked in the cath lab whenever I could because I'd had this experience under my belt. But this was before I became head of the cath lab. I told you about how peculiar that was. Well, now I find myself as head of the cath lab in my first year out of what I was, 27, 6. Anyway, it was in the very early days of open-heart surgery, before the heart-lung machine, deep hypothermia allowed the surgeons to do open surgery for about 5 to 10 minutes. And what congenital lesion can you do very rapidly? Common congenital lesion. You can sew up a small atrial septal defect, not in an infant, but in an adolescent or an adult. And there were plenty of those around. So what Glenn Morrow, what the chief of surgery, uh, said, you've got to tell me how big that atrial septal defect is. Because if I can stitch it together, I can do that in five minutes. If I have to put a patch on, we can't do it. We either have to defer the surgery until the heart-lung machine. They were doing open-heart surgery on the heart-lung machine, but you wouldn't do that for an atrial septal defect. It was still, it was still risky. And the preference was to do a deep hypothermia. This is a period that lasted about 18 months. Okay. So what we figured out, and this is John Ross and myself, was that if you put a catheter up the saphenous femoral vein, and if the catheter is a hook like this, 
it falls across the atrial septal defect. As a matter of fact, it's hard to get it into the SVC because it, it likes to go across. So we put a balloon in the catheter and we filled the balloon with diatrast, which was at that time a, uh, a radiopaque substance. And we pulled the, the uh, balloon back so that it got stuck in the defect. And we took a plain x-ray there. So it was dumbbell-shaped size. And you could put a uh, ruler and calculate that this defect is 1.8 centimeters in diameter. And Glenmore would say, go, we'll do it. So I did several of these. I did several of these procedures. They worked. Some of them were too large. And Glenn said, no, this is not for me. We'll, this is not for hypothermia. We'll put this lady on the list and we'll get her once. The uh, uh, heart-lung machine has been used both for you. Okay. So then it's John Ross's turn to do this. And so he was the second in command of this cath lab where five people worked there. Now, we lived across the street from the clinical center. There was a, not a dormitory, but there was an apartment building for staff. And uh, uh, Ross was single, and I was married to a surgical resident, which is pretty close to being single. And we lived on the same floor. And Ross, among his many uh, talents, enjoyed cooking. And I never could figure that out. So he cooked dinner for me, occasionally, not very frequently. And so I walked down the hall, and I have dinner with John. And he said, an interesting thing happened to me today. I said, tell me. He said, well, you know, I did the procedure, you know, did this atrial thing and so on. And I said, yeah. So I said, yes, I heard that it went quite well. He said, yes, but there was a visitor. His uh, name, he's from, from Buenos Aires. He said that he, had, he wore sunglasses in the cath lab. And he said, how often can you get the catheter into the left atrium? What's been your experience with this? This is the first time he's done it. He said 100% of the time. He said, so this guy says to him, he says, 100% of the time. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, but I can see how it happened because of the catheter had been bent uh, this way. He said, if the atrial septum were intact, couldn't you stick a needle through the catheter into the left atrium? And uh, Ross said, well, I, I, I don't know. I guess so. And he said to me, Gene, what do you think about that? I said, I said, it sounds interesting. Because we don't, ha- at that time, had a good way of getting into the left atrial room using wedge pressures. And, of course, we did retrograde cats. But at that time, now we're talking 50s. Nine, I think. 1959. You needed a surgical cut down to do a retrograde, the arterial bed in order to get a catheter retrograde into the left ventricle. That was a big deal. So we didn't have a good way of getting into the left ventricle. So I said, I said, John, I think 
you should take some time off. And uh, they had a wonderful machine shop and work with the guys in the machine shop and develop a needle that'll go through the catheter and so forth. And he said, okay. He said, if you take me out of the rotation in the catheter, I said, I will, except at night and on weekends. But, you know, during the day, during weekdays, it's fine. And uh, that was the birth of transeptal. Now, it had... uh, it's had a, a transeptal lift heart catheterization has had an interesting history. We used it almost exclusively to get it to the left heart in our laboratory. Obviously, it was homemade. We knew how to do it, rarely punctured the aorta and so forth. And uh, we did a lot of pharmacologic studies where the patient is perfectly comfortable. We put the needle in, put the catheter over the needle, advanced it into the left ventricle. And the patients were quite comfortable for a while. And it was taken up, I wouldn't say, everywhere. And it died a slow death over the course of the, I would say, 70s. Because retrograde uh, catheterization became very simple with the Seldinger technique, where you stick a needle in, and as you know, and then feed the catheter through the needle, retrograde up from the femoral artery. So, but then, of course, the electrophysiologists came, and two things happened. Electrophysiology needs to get into the left atrium. The left ventricle is not good enough. If you want to study many supraventricular tachycardias, if you want to study atrial fib, you've got to get into the left atrium. So the electrophysiologists revived this, what was almost forgotten technique, by this time, I'm in Boston, and believe it or not, they were asking me to show them how to do uh, a cardiac catheterization. That was a great honor. I was very nervous about it because I hadn't done one in 20 years. Anyway, I think the other thing that changed was echocardiography. And uh, you didn't have to do uh, diagnostic caths as frequently as before. And getting into the left atrium, you know how important it is, so for shunting and getting blood out of the left atrium, pumping it back into the arterial tree. Well, transeptal has had a tremendous comeback. And so when I hear and see about patients with the transeptal, this whole story that I told you sort of goes back through my mind and I sort of sit there and laugh about the dinner that John Ross. But you see, that was an accident. I mean, you know, it was as accidental as my getting that um, fellowship, uh, that was 10 years earlier. Just about transeptal, in that first paper that we wrote, we gave the name of that doctor from Argentina. We actually remained in touch with him. His name was Emilio Del Campo. And if you look at that paper, you will see an acknowledgement to Dr. Emilio Del Campo who provided the idea for developing and left heart conversation. Dr. Bronwell, it is amazing that your measurements for atrial septal defects using a balloon for sizing is still used today in our lab. Is it? Really? Yeah, yes, yes, indeed. Absolutely. And uh, my uh, mentor, Dr. Risar, and yeah. I was talking about how, you know, reviewing this and preparing for this episode, and it was just so exciting to see that this technology is 
tried and true and still very, very, very applicable. Oh, I'm, I'm amazed to hear that. I thought it was uh, dead and buried a long time ago. Not at all. No? And okay. as buddy, okay. yeah. Well, that's good. I should have patented it. Yeah, I would have been a rich man. for sure because not only that as a budding structuralist it's incredible to think about your discovery of transeptal puncture has become basis and cornerstone for so many procedures like you know pvi and afib pulmonary venous stents mitral clips and the list keeps on going as the technology keeps advancing oh yeah oh the mitral valve replacement absolutely and mitral valve replacement and as cardio nerds we're particularly excited to ask you this next question because our very first episode was aortic stenosis and very much based on your work. And in Thomas Lee's book, he describes a moment when Dr. Glenn Morrow was at a Friday afternoon calf conference discussing a patient with severe aortic regurgitation. Yeah. In context, the first aortic valve replacement had only occurred just a few years prior. And he asked you, how would this patient be doing in five years? And you if, admitted- Yeah, if we, don't, if we don't operate. If we don't operate, right. Yeah. That's right. And you admitted that you did not know the answer to that. How did this moment influence your research, including defining the natural history of aortic stenosis that has become the bedrock of all medical students everywhere? Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us for Chapter 2. Be sure to tune in for Chapter 3, where Dr. Bunwald will tell us about how he delineated the natural history of aortic stenosis, the tale of beta blockers and heart failure, and tell us about seizing the moment.